Welcome to the Harvard in Tech Seattle podcast. My name is Amr Benes, and I'm taking over from the great Stefan Harper as your host. This is episode eight of the Harvard in Tech Seattle podcast, and our guest today is Fatoumata Fall. Fatu is a STEM advocate and entrepreneur from Senegal. She's currently building a hydroponic startup called Goodness Green for the Sahel region. Prior to that, she co-founded a US-based negotiation company for high-achieving scientists and engineers that featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and was on the founding team of African Leadership University. Fatu graduated from Harvard University with a degree in applied mathematics. Fatu, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Emma. Very happy to be here. We're so excited to have you and this is my first episode taking over from Stefan, and I couldn't be more excited to have you as my first guest. Thank you. This is going to be fun. To start things off, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and also the journey that led you from Harvard, concentrating in applied mathematics uh, to the tech industry? So I am from Senegal. I am 28. And when I was in Senegal growing up here, I was always reading all sorts of books and I dreamt worlds that I had never seen. For example, I always wondered what fjords were and I always wondered what Argentina was and what Latin America was because we saw a lot of movies about it. And then at some point I started to like wonder, okay, if I don't want to go and study in France like everybody is doing here, where else could I study? That's how I started to wonder about the US. And I got a chance when I was uh, in my last grade 11 to apply to different colleges to the U.S. and made it to Harvard. And that was awesome. There were, you know, a few colleges that I had on my list, but Harvard was the only one my parents could pronounce. So I decided to go there. <laughs> and yeah, so anyway, that's the early part of my life. And at Harvard, my favorite thing was social entrepreneurship at the iLab, taught by a professor called Gordon Bloom. And that just changed my view on how my world could be, like what could do with the skills that I had learned. And then pretty much when I finished Harvard, I joined my first startup. It was an edtech startup. And today it's very successful. It's big in Africa. It's called African Leadership University. And it, the whole um, challenge was how do you flip the university model? So from like lecture-based stuff to actually people driving their own learning. And that was the first time I heard about lifelong learning. I heard about learning management systems. You know, how do you create something that's hybrid where um, a lot of the individual learning is through tech, but then you also have a lot of in-person learning and group learning. So yeah, so that's that was my introduction to tech. Fantastic. Did you start the African Leadership University or like you joined a, a pre-existing cohort? Yeah, so when I joined, we were, I think I was about employee number nine or 10. So there was a very small team. And when I joined, it was still an idea. Um, it was not yet, there was no campus yet. There was no student body yet. Like it was all basically a presentation, a business plan. But, you know, the founder, Fred Swanicker, is very experienced. He even made it to times 100 list. So... Even at the time, he already had a lot of experience building programs for young people in Africa. So I was, you know, lucky to be part of his first employees for ALU. And yeah, we created things from scratch. And I think it was a year later that we had our first class. Yeah, and then it just grew from there. You know, now it's thousands of students. And what did you do as employee number nine in ALU? Um, so basically, 
we were given five principles of the learning model. Uh, you know, they were like, okay, there must be group work. There must be a project-based approach. There must be interactions with companies in the program. And then there must be leadership skills, communications, data and decisions, and leadership skills. That was it. It was like, go and design among yourselves. I was given the data and decision, let's say, part of the curriculum. So we just researched and created like different philosophies and skill sets that we wanted students to explore. And then we found different models around the world. And then we started to like, I guess, incorporate the content part and then the projects. And yeah, like slowly just kind of we put it together and then we tested it twice before our first class of students. And what was the next step after after the ALU? Because I know that you did a couple of pretty big things after that. Right. So after ALU, I decided that I was still very young and I wanted to feel like a young person. <laughs> Creating a university can definitely feel heavy sometimes, especially as you deal with families and things and people like that. So I said, okay, I'm going to Argentina. I have always dreamt, even when I was a kid, to go there. And I went, and then I went into fintech. It was the first thing that caught my attention. So I first joined the startup that's called Recarga Pay that created an e-wallet, basically. And this was 2016 in Brazil. And it was really popular. People were paying their bills and buying airtime using this e-wallet. And I think now they are, you know, pretty big. They've raised 100. I don't know if it's gotten to 100 million, but definitely they are. I spent a short time there, but I learned a lot about how do you do the communications when you have an, a mobile app so that you can drive engagement uh, and in this case drive spending. And then I joined the second fintech startup that was more of a SaaS product. So they were really helping Argentinian companies and business, small businesses have transparency on their spending. Like where, where are they spending their money? Where is it coming from? Where are they like losing money because of unpaid bills or from their clients or late charges or bank charges, etc. So it was really analyzing the, the money ecosystem of these businesses and these companies. And I learned a lot about the financial ecosystem in Latin America and how crazy it is, the percentage of people that don't have a bank account and they just live on cash. And that was really eye-opening. Now, I would say that's like the most tech I have gone but then, you know, when I was doing that, my interest was in the people. Like, I started to observe some of the issues that are happening in the startup ecosystem uh, at the time. So a lot of the gender issues, uh, like disparities in leadership roles, disparities in just recognition, disparities in salary. So I started to pay attention to those problems. And I started to do leadership coaching for women at the time uh, with one of my mentors, who is the only woman director on the stock exchange in Argentina. <laughs> there are 14 members and she's the only woman at the time. I, I hope they have done better since. And yeah, so that was like my most tech experience, I would say. And that inspired me. You know, I wanted to advocate for women. I wanted to advocate for more quality because it wasn't right. One of the companies I worked with, there was only one woman that was on the software engineering side. In my case, when I joined, I was supposed to do a lot of the data science and I found myself being pushed to some like positions that were not technical, even though I wanted the technical side. And then later on, observing how much more junior like developers who were not even mathematicians were given this data science role. So that was really something that <laughs> irked me personally. So that's how I got to the advocacy side of tech. 
uh, and that informed the next company I built, which was Ralph. This was in Argentina, correct? Not in the US. Yeah, this was in Argentina. I mean, we were interacting with a few US startups for sure, because the fintech ecosystem is pretty, I would say, tightened after all. The investors are the same, right? Remit Capital, for example, invests in a lot of the top fintech companies around the world. So I, I mean, yeah, it was in the US, but definitely some of the themes were shared. Actually, while I was experiencing this, I was talking with my co-founder at the time, Brian Borough. He had built a startup in the US and he was building a data, uh, like Code Academy, that kind of platform at the time. So yeah, so we were just talking and seeing the same issues. And in his case, he was um, helping friends negotiate with tech offers, usually software engineering, data science. And he was noticing just huge disparities in the final offers or women not wanting to negotiate and not understanding that it's normal and that that's how like they can advocate for themselves, etc. So yeah, we were just, you know, different countries, but we were just seeing such similar issues in the in the tech ecosystem. And that's like what inspired us to work together on Ralph. And it sounds like the, the issues that you set out to tackle, like the pre-hiring stage, before you actually go into your role and settle into your role, more on the discovering the role, um, advocating for yourself, negotiating the offers, and dealing with uh, multiple offers at the time. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily multiple offers. We've had lots of cases where people had one offer and they wanted to negotiate that and, and, you know, they were able to, and sometimes they weren't, but it was an equal split, I would say. But yes, definitely the interview phase was our focus. Now, interestingly, the more we did it and the more our clients would refer other, like their friends and even sometimes their boss, right? We started to see more experienced people, so people that were already employees that wanted adjustments to their role or to their, you know, salaries. And so definitely we, we started to also see what happens during the, from at the promotion stage. What do you think the problem actually was? Like, what was the problem that you set out to solve with Ralph? And as you were founding the company, did your assessment of the problem change? Because sometimes founders, uh, as far as I know, sometimes they set out to solve one problem and over the course of time, they change their understanding of the problem and they kind of uh, pivot to solving a different one. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I would say that when we started, we thought the biggest issue is people don't have enough data because everybody will tell you, I don't have data. What's the data, right? And so we, we, of course, made this database that's not anonymized. So we would share the demographics of who the offers are from without disclosing the identity, right? But, but definitely it's better than like anonymously reported data. And you could drill down to which university was this or, you know, which previous company, et cetera. So, so really insightful data. And we thought that that was it. Like, you know, just make a database where you have better than anonymized data and let people see that really they are asking very little. And there were many cases where that was helpful. So I'll give you an example. One of my last clients, he was a PhD in computer engineering at the University of Florida. He grew up in Africa and he had never been on the U.S. job market. So when we started to advise him at the interview stage for his industry, um, next industry opportunity, his idea of his market value was about $80,000 of salary. His real market value was somewhere double that, between 140K and 170K. And so being able to show him the database of scientists like him in, in the AI field 
and him seeing in details the breakdown of the offers, of course, that helped him like go from, okay, I'm going to ask 80K to like, all right, I'm going to ask for 140K, right? So that's helpful. But for example, the same person was very scared to ask for an equity package of 400K over four years, which is kind of the average that that particular like skill set they are getting when they are coming out of the university system, like at PhD level. Um, so how do you help solve the confidence problem, right? So that's something new that we learned when we went into it. We saw that it was not enough to have an excellent database. It was very important to have that advisor relationship, that kind of coaching skill, like the soft skills that helps this person close the confidence gap, right? So they can feel psychologically safe to ask for really what the market is paying. So, so that's very important, the advisory relationship. And then I think the bigger problem that we also discovered was people have no idea about their market value, not just in the numerical sense, right? But in the sense of how are they relevant to this industry? How are their skills relevant to this company? What is the story of them and their contribution in the roles they were applying for? That's personally where I saw the biggest problem. And the great divide was not even between women and men. It was between international and those that are not internationals, that were like US engineers and US scientists. I saw so many internationals apply for roles that were that were like one or two levels below what they are qualified to do. And so, of course, they would get salaries that were, you know, half of what they could get if they had applied to the right role. So I think that's actually the biggest problem that I discovered, mismatch between skill sets and the roles that people are applying for, just because of panic, right? Like you, you want to get your H1B, et cetera, so this kind of desperation that happens. What you're saying um, really resonates with me because I was also um, an international student at Harvard, but even though I didn't really try to go into the tech field from there, but I'm wondering, you know, through your work with these candidates and the people that you've helped in Ralph, but were you able to, to find a root cause? Is there a root cause? Yeah, like there's a confidence gap. I saw, for example, how Iranian women engineers and scientists were extremely qualified, extremely qualified, right? They were applying, you know, sometimes to the most inadequate roles, like as in they were way more qualified than what they were applying for and even the companies that they were applying to. And the root cause of that was fear and it was disconnectedness from the source of the information, right? So, you know, they would have the least dense relationship with recruiters. They had the most fear because Iran has the, you know, the most complex immigration process. They are the ones who face that in the U.S. And at least from like the scientific community and maybe Iraqis also. So they were like those factors of fear. And then, yeah, there was just the fear that they would not be given the opportunity and they would have to go back to their country of origin and uh, not having like direct relationships. Like, so they were less likely to say, I applied because a hiring manager asked me to, right? And in general, it was like, well, I just applied online. So just observing those facts as like root causes, like there's a social capital that was missing and there's also a huge element of fear and not feeling psychologically safe to negotiate or to ask for things and instead just feeling grateful that, that you received even like one job from a recruiter, right? So 
So I think that was like what we observed as driving factors and some of the ways that we addressed it. So the fear aspect is the hardest, you know, that's a coach and, and it's a mix between coaching, advisory and information that helped. But at the end of the day, it took us to connect those particular profiles with clients that had already finished to talk to them, to say, hey, it doesn't work like that. Don't be afraid. Let me advise you. Go this way. Do this, do that. Like some mentorship, basically. And then we also organized at some point career talks. So we would have hiring managers come in um, and share their stories of the record. And, and we would invite all sorts of engineers and scientists, like students to attend. And that helped, you know, because that demystified their fears. And, and they were able to also contact those people later. And so that, those are some of the ways that we acted on what we saw. How did you make the switch from Ralph to Goodness Screen? Ralph is now Aurora. So the website is teamaurora.com. Uh, and that's from Rosa Parks and Ralph Nila coming together. Those are the two people that, that inspire us. And that's that brave spirit, right, of self-advocacy. I wanted to say that, to me, the most important thing that a solution like Aurora, or formerly Ralph, is doing is just to take that crowd knowledge and making sure that you can access that easily, right? So everyone knows what they are making in tech, right? Some people are making way more than others, which is a lot of what I saw while we were doing it. But they are not talking to each other because of social taboos. And also, as I said, right, you have these different disconnected communities, right? What Rora is doing, it helps just spread the knowledge, spread the information. Everyone can access it in a way that's normalized, like that's more acceptable or more easily acceptable than like, for example, I saw someone yesterday post what they earn on LinkedIn, and it was very brave. And 10,000 people liked it. So that's very important, I think. The power of the crowd. And then the second thing is just, as I was telling you, fear as an emotion is a huge driver of, of this inequality and this confidence gap in tech. And anywhere, actually, not just tech. So being able to have this, this human-to-human service that can help support someone while they are going through this hiring phase. So that's how I would summarize that. You asked me uh, about the transition. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I love Rora, but it was hard to be in the US for me, uh, isolated from my support system. And also a lot of immigration headaches between me and my husband, like Senegal, Argentina, that we didn't really know how to deal with easily. So I decided at some point that it was better to just be back to my hometown and have the social support. I was definitely burnt out. And, you know, think about how to continue the social impact work that I always, you know, have done. I was, you know, doing that phase of detox, like just nature and swimming and sleeping well and just family and love and support. And then uh, my husband had the idea of hydroponics because he, he went cycling around the country and he had seen hydroponics in Argentina. And he said, you know, I think that this water issue thing is something I can do about it. And so he started to build some prototypes and, and I started to be curious and I would join him during the courses that he was doing. And then we started to build together and that's how I got into it. So <laughs> it was an accidental interest and passion that I discovered. And I think for me, the passion part was just understanding the impact that this kind of technology can have for, for Africa, especially for dry climate area that, that Senegal is in, right? So that's how I got into it. 
And then we just, we, we got a good challenge at the beginning, right? So, so there was a course we were doing and the professor said, you know, hydroponics is maybe, maybe impossible in the Sahel. He didn't say impossible. He said, maybe it's like, you know, it would be a miracle if you could do that because the temperature of the water, because you grow everything in water, it has to be less than 24 degrees Celsius. This is what we got from him. And we checked with others and they would tell us the same thing. Call it rebellion, call it counter-revolutionary. I don't know. We just said, you know what? I think we can do it. Let's do it. And we did. <laughs> Took five months, but we did hydroponics with the high temperatures here, the 32 degrees average Celsius. And yeah, so since then, very lucky to have beautiful harvest of fresh vegetables. We sold to an Italian restaurant. We have others interested. And so now we said, okay, maybe there's a business here. And, and that's what I'm working on. Sounds like a groundbreaking. Um... I wouldn't say discovery, but groundbreaking advancement in, in the field. It's a field that's growing fast in the world because there's a, it has such potential, you know, for climate resilience and also because of urban farming. I mean, it's well known to be useful for growing marijuana and hemp and CBD and stuff. Uh, but here in Africa, the potential is huge for, for vegetable production. That's why we're excited for that. And what are your plans for, for Goodness Green moving forward from here? Yeah, so I think for us, we are very excited, you know, of course, to, to supply uh, commercially to more uh, hotels, restaurants, you know, the high-end places that really love fresh, high-quality vegetables here. And then more importantly, we're really excited to make it a movement to, to basically position ourselves as suppliers and trainers so that all sorts of schools and small producers of vegetables in, in Africa we have seen interest from the retired community, like from people that have retired from the government and some of the big companies, and they are looking at this as a viable project for them. So, so we hope to enable all those people to be able to grow whatever they like using hydroponics. That's our dream. And yeah, so that's in the future for us. And I think personally for me, I have also um, stayed true to my passion for career development. So I still coach people on their careers, on their negotiations. I do that because I just believe in it so much. You know, if you ask me beyond Goodness Green, what I see for the future, I would say more opportunities that balance the digital world and the physical world. I think this madness in tech is going to revert back to the truth, which is that we need harmony. And sitting 12 to 16 hours in front of a computer, it is not natural. <laughs> that's my belief. And that's what I, what I experienced personally. I know so many people that also have this experience. So I think that Whoever is working on creating more opportunities to balance, right? Jobs where you can be more outside and you can interact with the climate, really. Jobs where you can interact with food, where you can interact with social intelligence. So organizing people to do certain things that make us make our lives better. I think that's the future. And I invite others in tech to also consider that. This obsession with digital world, it will flip. We will go back to wanting a balance. This all sounds fascinating. And also listening to your story, it sounds like you, you know, you, you moved from like one kind of sector to the other, but there also seems to be kind of like an underlying theme. So I'd be curious to learn what do you think contributed to your success over the years um, until now? And what, what do you think will propel you forward? And then out of that, are there any lessons that you want to share with our audience? So, yes, I went from math to EdTech to FinTech to career development and now hydroponics and agriculture. You know, even though I studied all these years so many statistics, 
I love people. I am always curious about innovations that are social in nature. How do you spread a behavior or how do you spread a belief? And that helps me. I would say that's one of my biggest secrets. I always find opportunities that I really believe. And that's how I'm able to learn so much so fast because I, I believe so much in that power of social innovations. So improving our lives by changing the way that people live or the, what they believe, right? One tip I will leave is ask yourself, what do you believe very strongly? What do you stand for? And organize your career, whatever path or whatever opportunity you're taking on and saying yes to around that. That's what I did. And I always focused on people. So I was always in roles that were either like program design, human-centered design, um, service. Now I do fundraising and marketing and hiring communications, but always around people. So it's like combining what you believe about the world and what you believe about yourself in many ways. Sometimes you hear the advice of, you know, like, listen to your gut or like, you know, what are you passionate about? But I think the way that you put it and also, you know, listen to your story, I think that lesson really strikes more true now coming from you and coming from listening to your experiences. Thank you. I would say the last thing I didn't share, I guess, is as a second tip. It's like I see it as yin and yang, right? There's one part that's like longing, right? And that's the part I explain right now, that I just go for what I believe and what I believe about the world and what I believe about myself, right? Then there's the yang, which is like the mm, discontent, I would say. <laughs> and I think everyone has some kind of energy that they want to, maybe that's not necessarily aligned with them. And for me, it took a while, but I started to understand that If I, like, I love being paid or whatever, like finding resources to create something uh, or to support something new. That's kind of how I am. And so I spent a few years before I could understand, oh, you know, maybe the full-time job thing is not my thing. It works for a lot of people, but it's not necessarily aligned with how I work and how I think about everything. <laughs> and so also thinking about the details, you know, of how you do things and observing what works, what's aligned and what's not aligned. I also took a few years to understand that. That brings it like full circle, you know, of the, of the yin and the yang, finding both, you know, what you're truly passionate about and what you believe in. Also the little details of how you can actually bring that to life. Yeah. And, and kind of avoiding to force a particular method or path that just doesn't work with your personality, I would say. So It took me a while to learn that too. And now listening to your experience, I'm wondering if it's something that people learn in their late 20s. I hope everyone learns it, but it's, um, yeah, I could have definitely used your advice in my younger years. Yeah, hopefully they learn. <laughs> well, Fatu, um, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on episode eight of this podcast. Thanks for our listeners. And big shout out again to Stefan Harper, who I've taken help from for this podcast, and also to our lady behind the scenes, Vesna, who is our podcast editor. Big shout out to her. So thank you so much, Fado, again. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Alan. You can find us by email, LinkedIn, or Facebook at Harvard and Tech Seattle. Links will be in the show notes.